I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy. And you're listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two different friends, Amy is like a golden retriever and I am like a grumpy cat, talk about all the coolness that comes from living a bookish life. Each week we do a deep dive Q&A with a book lover, an author, awesome, a bookseller, bingo, a member of a book club, marvelous. We chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are. Normally, we don't repeat the same guests multiple times on the show because there are so many great writers to feature, but we decided to ask Kimberly Martin back on the show for this episode. Kimberly is a trained ER physician who is now a full-time author, and her niche is medical fiction about female doctors. She is the author of three books, The Queen of Hearts, The Antidote to Everything, and her newest, Doctors and Friends. When she spoke with us last time in season two, which was in the before times, she hinted at the manuscript she was working on about a female doctor during a global pandemic and the horrible decision she has to make about her children. That manuscript became Doctors and Friends. We asked Kimmery on because we're still knee deep in COVID and we had to know what was it like to write a novel about a pandemic just as an actual pandemic was moving around the globe. Plus, Kimmery contracted COVID and who hasn't? Well, me, actually, I haven't, but (laughs) I'm in the minority, which added another interesting layer to her work as a writer. But first, what's going on with you? So I think today is my last, depending on how you count, which I have learned that counting is different during COVID. I think today or tomorrow, I can come out of quarantine. I know for work-related stuff, I can come out of quarantine tomorrow. So I'm probably going to be busting out of quarantine. Well, I am still hunkered down, mainly just going to the grocery store and going in for quick trips to the library or the post office because my father-in-law is still recovering from his uh, open heart surgery and we're trying desperately to keep COVID away from him. But our lives are pretty boring right now, Carrie. In fact, our book club had a meeting this last Thursday and neither you or I were able to attend. So I sat home in my pajamas and pouted instead. Yeah. Well, you you had good intentions. You talked about maybe those of us who weren't able to make it having a Zoom book discussion, but then you were like, now I'm in bed and I'm warm, so forget it. (laughs) I did kind of do that, didn't I? (laughs) That was okay. I'm like, whatever. I don't think anybody was super like, woohoo, let's do a Zoom meeting. I don't think anybody was like that. No. But in this time that I have been uh, at home trying to avoid getting COVID, uh, I have watched a couple of interesting things. My husband and I started this new series last night that I had heard about called Reservation Dogs. And it's on Hulu. Is this a new series or is this just a new to you series? Uh, Well, I, I think it's new within the last six months. Yeah, I don't know when it came out exactly. Because I think there was um, a movie called Reservation Dogs. No, that was no? called Reservoir. That was called oh, Reservoir Dogs. Oh, okay. Gotcha. In Reservation Dogs, this is a, a story of four Native American teenagers in a tribal village in Oklahoma. And it is a dramedy. So it's, you know, a drama comedy, but the writing is so sharp. There are so many funny moments and yet it's poignant. I just love it. We've seen two episodes and we've watched them twice, actually. Wow. And as soon as we finish recording this, my husband and I are going to go binge watch a couple more. But it's all uh, indigenous actors playing the indigenous characters. The main writer is indigenous and one of the executive producers is the, I'm not going to say his name right, but the director who's from New Zealand, who's part Taika Maori. Waititi. Yes, he is an executive producer of it. So if you've seen some of his things and like his quirky sense of humor, it's it's in this too. So we're really loving that. Cool. Yeah. Uh, but I highly recommend it. Highly, cool. highly recommend it. The other thing I'm watching is random. Y'all had to listen to me talk about being sent on Facebook these animal birthing videos. Well, I've stopped getting so many of those, so that's good. But what I'm getting now, and this is not as graphic, (laughs) but I've become enamored with watching farriers re-horseshoe horses. I know that sounds weird, but it's very zen and sort of meditative to see them like 
pull off the horseshoe and scrape down their hoof and do different things. And, you know, they like put this gloss on it and they file it and they shave it. And it Let me just say, <laughs> I hope time travel is not a thing because if, <laughs> if my 18 year old self could time travel to the future 30 years and got to sit in on this conversation, she would be like, this sounds awful. This is what I'm doing when I'm 48 years old. This is the kind of stuff that excites me and that I talk about. She would be yeah. mortified. Let me just say that. She would yeah, be you mortified. Know what? When, I'm, when I'm drinking my morning coffee and I'm like scrolling through my phone and videos of horses getting reshoed comes on and they're doing the scraping. Okay. Okay. We, we get it. The scraping. The scraping. The scraping. The scraping. <laughs> and just, you know, it's just like when I get a pedicure and they have to, you Ugh. know, do all kinds of things. I didn't, do you ever get I, pedicures? No. <laughs> feet are <laughs> disgusting. Everybody's feet. So here's my pet peeve. I cannot stand it when people post beach photos of their feet in the sand. I will totally believe that they are at the beach if they just take a picture of the beach. They don't need to show me their janky toes in the sand at the beach. What, what if their toes are all painted? And no, all they're nice. still toes. They're still feet. They're gross. Okay. Feet okay. are disgusting. Take a picture of your knees. You know, you're sitting in the beach. Put that sand over those feet. I am anti-feet, horse hooves. Well, I mean, you know, whatever. That's your thing. I thought this conversation was going to be less disgusting than last week's. And yet I was wrong. I think most people's feet are gross. I guess I just don't think all feet are gross. They're all okay, gross. Okay, well, never mind that. I mean, okay, some people will try to pretty them up with, with polish, but they're still gross. I mean, they're just, they're nubby fingers. You know, it's like. They're just gross. I wonder if Kimberly thinks that toes are gross. I don't know. She's a doctor. So her level of what constitutes as disgusting is much different from ours. But let's listen <laughs> to right. what she has to say. <laughs> Kimberly Martin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me again. This is the second time that you've chatted with us. When you came on our show last time, you were talking about your book, Antidote to Everything, but you hinted at the book that just came out, your Doctors and Friends book. And this was, I think, maybe a month before COVID shut everything down when you were here speaking with us. So we wanted to have you on again to talk about this new book because we feel, I don't know, like we sort of went through the pandemic with you a little bit. We started talking about that at the beginning because your book is about a pandemic. So tell us just what's been going on with you since the last time we talked with you. Well, first, let me say, I'm really sorry for causing the pandemic because clearly <laughs> I did. <laughs> I, I do remember talking to you and that was some epic foreshadowing because I think I was talking about how my next novel was going to have a brand new worldwide viral pandemic and there would be these female doctors on the front lines and <laughs> clearly that was a mistake. <laughs> um, I had finished a first draft, a rough first draft right around that time, I think, because The Antidote for Everything released right as COVID released at the end of February 2020. And so that book tour got cut short and I went home and spent the next like three months revising the novel that I had been working on, Doctors and Friends, in response to the actual pandemic that we were living through. That's crazy. So can you give our listeners a brief summary of Doctors and Friends? You've kind of talked about it a little bit, but just flesh it out for them. Yeah. So the original pitch was going to be The Hot Zone Meets Sophie's Choice. So if you're familiar with those books, I know you're probably alarmed, but the main <laughs> character is <laughs> infectious disease doctor at the CDC uh, in this branch called the Epidemic Intelligence Service, which is a real group of people at the CDC whose mission it is, is to investigate and constrain outbreak of disease. And she is traveling with her group of friends from medical school at what turns out to be the onset of a brand new worldwide viral pandemic. They're traveling in Spain and Morocco. 
And she uh, is instrumental in formulating the American response to this virus because it happens to be the one in which she is an expert. And then near the very end of the pandemic, both of her children become deathly ill, and she just happens to have access to one dose of an experimental antiviral medication. And she literally has to choose between her children as to which one will receive it. And I know that sounds really far-fetched, but I actually based that on some real-life scenarios that I had heard about. And so that was the original book. And then when COVID hit, we did make a few changes in response to that. I mean, the book almost didn't get published because we were you know, wondering who would want to read it by the time it came out, since publishing is slow. So we'll get to that in just a minute. But because this viral pandemic is an essential piece of the novel, why did that idea seem like something that you wanted to write about? And are you absolutely sure that you did not know about COVID before anybody else? (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) I definitely did not, or I would have done a lot of things differently. Um, I, I mean, I've always liked infectious disease. I'm an emergency medicine doctor by training, and and that's, you know, been the majority of my adult life. And I have a stipulation in my contract with Penguin Random House that my books have to be medical fiction, and they have to have a female doctor as the protagonist. And I kind of had this idea that I would write about an infectious disease doctor. I had written an article in 2018 about the book I wanted to write next. I had this sort of vague idea that I would model the character's personality and attributes after my father, who was not a doctor, but if he had been, I thought that he would have probably been an infectious disease doctor because they're very cerebral, very logical, they're very innovative, they have to do a lot of creative stuff in the field when when they don't have the right equipment or whatever. They're just interesting people. And the, the subject is so fascinating. So I, I had the idea in 2018 that I would write about an infectious disease doctor. And then in 2019 is really when I researched and drafted and sold the novel to the publisher. So I think in a way, it seems like because pandemic has been on our brains for so long, but really pandemics and epidemics are not far-fetched. They're not unusual necessarily. I mean, I think it's just over people's lifetimes. They, You know, it's only been a hundred years since we had, well, actually less than that. I mean, the big pandemic of 1918, but I believe there have been other pandemics that have sort of flown under the radar. So, I mean, just from your medical experience and what you've learned, is that the case that epidemics and pandemics are more common than maybe what the general public realizes? Yeah, yeah. Um, We've had some significant influenza pandemics since 1918, although they weren't on that catastrophic scale. But there was a a pretty significant one, I believe, in 1957. Um, I'd have to look that up. But, But a lot of people die periodically when viruses mutate and shift their antigens and and decrease the immunity that the population already has to them. And then if you look back through history, you know, we are periodically slaughtered in mass by emerging pathogens. So you can go back and look at, you know, these plagues that affected ancient Rome and the Americas. And when I think about the worst microbe of all time, it, it clearly would be smallpox, which devastated you know, hundreds of millions of people throughout history. So yes, this is like our longtime mortal enemy when you're talking about pandemics. That idea has sort of been strangely comforting to me during this whole thing, because I'm like, this isn't anything new. It seemed like the one constant (laughs) that, that I could hold on to when every five seconds, it seems like, you know, school's in, school's out, mask on, mask off, you know, it's just Yeah, and part of the reason I wanted to write the book in the first place is we actually really are on the cusp of some major evolution when it comes to antiviral and antimicrobial treatment, but we really haven't quite gotten there yet. And so when you think about 1918, we don't have an effective antiviral magic bullet yet. Uh, And we didn't in 1918. We have better supportive care. You know, we have better access to ventilators and supportive drugs and intensive care, but that gets overwhelmed really quickly. And so I was thinking about it as I was writing the book is how prepared are we for a really devastating pandemic that would overwhelm hospitals? Because precisely because we haven't got a true 
virus killer yet. But I mean, there's so many interesting things coming in medicine when, when it comes to infectious disease. And obviously, like the development of mRNA vaccines, which we've been working on for decades, played a huge role in this particular pandemic. So I, I attended the book event that you did at Carmichael's Books in Louisville, you know, before the holidays. And you talked about how your book editor asked you to make some changes to your original draft because they were just unsure whether people would want to read about a pandemic right after living through a pandemic and we're still living through that pandemic. What kind of significant changes did they want you to make to it? Uh, well, my editor said, and this was pretty realistic that, you know, we would all have really severe pandemic fatigue by the time the book came out because the book came out in November of 2021, even though it was finished in early 2020. And I, I'm completely sympathetic to that. I mean, I have severe pandemic fatigue myself. So she said, because we will have all lived through a pandemic, people are not going to necessarily want to read this, but we haven't all lived through a pandemic on the front lines. And so one of the things that they had me do was rewrite parts of the story so that characters who were in the original draft became point of view characters. And um, the two in particular that really changed were Compton, an ER doctor in New York City, and Hannah, who is an OBGYN in San Diego. And in the first draft of the book, they were in there and their storylines were the same, but you couldn't see directly from their perspectives. And now you can. So I rewrote chapters to be in a, a different person. And then we made some smaller changes to like I added Zoom scenes <laughs> right? <laughs> so that, you know, you can video conference in your pajamas. And, but we talked about whether or not to change the societal and governmental response in the book, which is, in retrospect, is really optimistic. Like there's a very science-focused president, a young woman. People are fairly on board societally with the idea of trying to fight the, the pandemic with vaccines and with mitigation measures to control disease spread. And I kind of left the more optimistic scenario intact in the book because it's kind of a what might have been now. Well, and I really appreciated that because the way a lot of governments have handled it has been like free for all, you know, you get it. It, it is what it is, right? I mean, we've actually heard that statement. And even now, you know, where things have gotten better, there's still problems with getting tests that people can afford in a timely manner. For me, I feel a certain amount of relief almost. When I was reading that, I was like, oh, that would have been so nice. You know, did you feel that way yourself writing that? Well, that's the beauty of fiction is the author controls the outcome. So it was very empowering. <laughs> yes. And like the, at the very beginning of this pandemic, the response was that we were going to ramp up everything as much as possible when it came to, you know, making sure we had enough testing and enough reagents and enough masks and enough of a contact tracing army and vaccines and all of the things, you know, so we, we really got our act together early on in the book. And yes, I, I very much enjoyed being able to control that. <laughs> so this book continues something that has been in your other books, which is the close relationships between the female doctors who have a long history. They all went to medical school together. And, you know, my husband is a, a physician as well. And I think that there's a lot of bonding that goes on in medical school and in residency, similarly maybe to like a military relationships. When you've been through something that could be traumatic, there's a strong bond. So what I love is the way they continue through each of the books. Each book of yours talks about a different main character of those female doctors who went to medical school together. Yeah, and that was actually the genesis of all of these books is I wanted to write about this really intense camaraderie that you have um, when you've been through medical training together. And, and that's derived from my own life because I have a really close-knit group of medical school girlfriends. There's seven of us, um, and there's seven in the book, not coincidentally. So, you know, I, I have these real ride-or-die friendships in my life that mean so much to me and and I wanted to reflect that in the book. Now, the characters don't reflect real people individually. So there, it's not like there's a corresponding character for each of my friends. And I'm sure they would want me to make that very clear. 
<laughs> and, and, you know, like a lot of these events are straight up fiction. It didn't really happen. There are some things in all, all three of the books that maybe do derive from real life circumstances or anecdotes, you know, kind of things. But, but for the most part, they're fictional. I will say, having attended two of your book events uh, in Louisville, there's a group of them that come to your readings every time. They're there to support you, and it's really nice to see. Yeah, yeah, it is. I did my medical training in Louisville, and um, pretty much one of my favorite places to visit. I I did want to ask about Compton. She's the ER doctor that is in your book. So you have training and experience as an ER doctor. Were you drawing on sort of your own experiences or were you interviewing and talking to other doctors who were dealing with the COVID pandemic and sort of using their experiences to add to what you wrote about her? Because that was, that felt overwhelming to me. Yeah. yeah, Just to imagine what that was like for, for a physician. Yeah, definitely both. Compton does reflect some of my own experience being overwhelmed by carnage, um, which which happens in emergency medicine, pandemic or not. But I was also crowdsourcing a big group of doctors, both before COVID and throughout it. So I had a group of infectious disease doctors that I interviewed, and then also a few virologists and epidemiologists. And I'm in a big Facebook group of all emergency medicine doctors. There's about 22,000 people in the group. And I put out a message in that group asking if I could correspond with people. So throughout COVID, I was getting these anguished (laughs) emails from people on the front lines who were, you know, experiencing things on a whole new level (laughs) compared to anything most of us had ever experienced before. And it was at times heart-wrenching. Of course, I can empathize so deeply with everybody in the medical profession and especially everybody in the emergency department. And they're still getting hammered to this day. It's overwhelming. Absolutely. I follow a lot of doctors on Twitter and, you know, whether they're infectious disease or, you know, just frontline workers. And if you've been vaccinated and you, you've tried to follow the, the guidelines to the best of your ability, hopefully you've remained fairly healthy. And to read about some of the things that they're having to tell patients, and it's not just patients who have COVID, it's it's patients who are sick with other things and are having to postpone really important surgeries because the hospital, you know, they don't have enough staff and they don't have enough beds. And, you know, I, I sometimes feel even within the pandemic sheltered. And then I read about them and I think, oh, I can't even imagine what that's like to have to tell patients, sorry, you, you have to wait on your cancer surgery. Yeah, that has been horrific. So there's an added layer of your book that's interesting to me in that not only is the acute illness from the virus a problem, but there are many lingering side effects from the disease that later come into play. And you yourself had COVID prior to vaccines being available, and it has left behind some unwelcome reminders for you. So tell us a little bit about your experience. And was that part written pre-COVID or after you had your own experience? Uh, that was 100% written before, and, and it turned out to be just so weirdly ironic because in the book, the main character has a teenager and, you know, teenagers are teenagers, right? <laughs> and she winds up contracting the disease and so forth. But in real life, for me, I got COVID from one of my kids and developed a bizarre neurologic side effect or a couple of neurologic side effects, actually. Um, So for the last year and a half, I have been not only unable to smell, but everything that has a scent of its own, to me, smells like rotting meat. And And the stronger the aroma would be normally, the worse the bad smell is to me. So things like lemon or garlic or perfume or people, (laughs) lotions, toothpaste is the worst, alcohol is the worst, stuff like that I can't hardly tolerate. And it it was really overwhelming and disruptive. And then I also have dysautonomia, which is another neurologic impact of having had COVID where my heart rate and blood pressure and energy level and all these other things are affected. And in the book, the fictional virus 
causes a bizarre neurologic side effect that manifests itself in a delayed fashion in certain segment of the population. So yeah, I did invent that. And then something similar, although not quite as terrible (laughs) happened to me. So are you still suffering with those side effects? Yeah. Yeah. I still have them. And I know nobody knows for sure, but I have read that some people who had strange senses of smell after COVID or couldn't smell, gradually it's beginning to come back. Do they think that that's a possibility for you, that that side effect might eventually fade away? I mean, nobody knows for sure. That particular side effect is called parosmia, because you've probably heard of anosmia, where people can't smell at all when they have acute COVID. And I couldn't smell for about three months after having it. And then it morphed into this really toxic smell. And they think what happens is that the the cells that support the olfactory nerve get impacted and they try to rewire these connections when they are healing and they just misfire, I think. Mm -hmm. So parosmia is not unknown. People did suffer from it before COVID, um, sometimes in response to other viruses or medication side effects or whatever. And sometimes it does get better and sometimes it doesn't. As far as the, you know, severe fatigue and low blood pressure and fast heart rates and all that kind of thing, we don't really know how long that's going to last or if it will be permanent. You had mentioned talking to people in that in that group on Facebook and using social media to, to crowdsource. With the research that you did, what were some of the takeaways from your time interviewing or hearing from professionals who work in public health agencies, whether they're at the CDC or, or just, you know, doing public health in their towns? Yeah, I talked to about 40 such people overall. Well, first of all, I think that they are heroic. Um, I know there's a lot that we got wrong in our real life pandemic, but on an individual level, these people are so devoted and so hardworking and so patient. (laughs) Like I would have lost my mind at the stuff that they have had to deal with. Um, And sometimes, you know, it's, it's not just your occasional work nightmare. It's people actively hating them or disparaging them or lying about them or um, misrepresenting them. And so they've had these obstacles to deal with just to be able to do their jobs and their jobs are hard enough in a normal time, but now they're often almost impossible. And I talked to some really well-known people throughout the course of my research. Mainly I'm just impressed with what brilliant, kind people they are. This kind of rolls into another thing I wondered about, which is, you know, there's that saying that sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. And I'm wondering if there are things that really happened during COVID that are just too bizarre for you to have imagined to write about for your book. Yeah. I mean, COVID (laughs) COVID is weird. It is deeply weird, right? In some ways, it behaves like a typical virus, but in other ways, it, it manifested itself in a completely unanticipated fashion, you know, the way it would affect so many different body systems causing all this clotting and different organ system impacts. And probably the weirdest thing about COVID early on for doctors was there was this complete mismatch between a patient's oxygenation level and their level of functioning. Because if you had told me, you know, that people would be rolling into the ER with oxygen saturations in the low 80s and they'd be talking and acting normally, I would not have believed it. But we we started calling them happy hypoxics because people would not crash right away when their oxygen levels dropped with COVID. They would crash eventually, but nobody really foresaw that coming. I don't think it was, it was just so odd. And the way the disease responded to certain treatments and I mean, I could go on and really nerd out here, but your (laughs) listeners probably don't want to, don't want to, don't want to go that deep. I don't know. One of the co-hosts is like, really? Tell me more. So, you know, you were saying that your editor wasn't sure if people would have pandemic fatigue. And right now I'm actually watching Station Eleven on HBO, which is a limited series based on a book by Emily St. John Mandel, which is about the aftermath of, of a pandemic. And I was I was doing this at the same time that I was finishing up reading your book. And beforehand, I wasn't sure if a pandemic themed book or movie would bother me. And I found out that it actually didn't. I found it sort of reassuring in a strange way. And I'm wondering, what has been your reaction to that? Obviously, you wrote a book about a pandemic, but how do you feel about reading them yourself? And what has the reaction been from your readers? I'm okay with reading them, obviously, because I have always done that. (laughs) I think one thing my editor did that was 
such good foresight is she said, you need to change the ending of your book because my original ending was more medically plausible, but a little bit grimmer. Mm -hmm. And she said, you need a hopeful ending. Um, she actually said that before COVID, but especially after COVID, nobody's going to want to read a book that ends on a medically plausible, but grim <laughs> note. <laughs> we do not want that. <laughs> um, so there's some hope in the ending of the book. And I think that is in its own way reassuring. Also, again, I think a lot of people have a real curiosity for how somebody might have envisioned a pandemic playing out before we lived through it. And people kind of like to compare what actually happened with the way I imagined it happening. Now, that being said, I think there's a huge chunk of the population, and it's probably most people who are not ready for pandemic fiction yet. <laughs> and I completely understand that. I hope that I hope that they'll pick it up at some point in the future if they like my other books. But I do want to say there is some humor in the book. And there's this, like I mentioned earlier, this this incredible friendship and there's some sweetness and some poignancy and it's not all like teary. I hope people will also like that about the book. So when she said that you needed to make it not quite so grim and ending and maybe not so medically plausible, were you okay with that? Or did the doctor part of you really want to make it more realistic in that way? Well, the doctor part of me did want it to be the most realistic, but I actually, my editor is like, look, you can write a really long author's note and explain yourself, <laughs> which is what I did. So, you know, I said this in the author's note, but, you know, in medicine, we're always trying to quantify and qualify everything for maximum accuracy. And that is considered bad fiction writing. You don't want a lot of qualifiers in your fiction writing. You, that leads to a lot of adverbs and a lot of most of the times and sometimes, but you know, like people don't want to read that. They want something captivating and straightforward and understandable without a whole lot of like, this may or may not be the case. So I put all that in the author's note and said, I took some creative license here and there, but for the most part, most of the stuff is plausible in the book. I, I know for myself, your book did not bother me in the least, you know, in terms of the pandemic, but I recently had to pause watching Station Eleven. But I felt like with your book, you know, there's to a certain extent, you know, even though it's hard and it's challenging, life goes on. You have to keep moving forward. And, and so the friendships of these women, yeah, some things change because of, the pandemic, but ultimately, you know, what are you going to do? You you have to keep moving forward and living your life as best you can. So I, I felt like that was hopeful. Yes. And the pandemic in the book ends fairly definitively after a relatively short period of time. So that is also enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> so your books do something that is unique and that they focus on the lives of women who decide to go into the medical profession. And while women have been doctors for over a century now, I think many people still think about the lifestyle in terms of male doctors. And, you know, you're a former ER physician and you give us the world of medicine for women in the real world credibility that few other writers can do. So how do you think working in the medical field affects the personal lives of the women who choose that profession that the average person may not think about? Well, I would separate that into two answers, one of which is kind of the, the personal aspect of it, because it's a demanding field. You know, you, you spend years and years training, a lot of sleep deprivation, a lot of really intense situations where you're experiencing the highs and lows of birth and life and death vicariously sometimes, but you're taking on all this responsibility. And for me and my, my profession, that was the single hardest thing was this looming fear that I would make a mistake and harm someone. And most jobs don't have that degree of responsibility. The only thing else I can think of is airline pilot or person in the military or, you know, maybe a handful of other fields, but you don't really have people's lives in your hands mm. in most professions. And so it's this massive commitment and responsibility, but also very rewarding. You know, it is a beautiful career. It is absolutely wonderful to be able to make an impact in the lives of other human beings who need help, who are suffering or who are injured or who are ill. So it is a wonderful career also. You asked me earlier about things I didn't anticipate with COVID and I gave you a medical answer, but the societal answer really is where things diverged from anything I could have foreseen. I did not 
anticipate it becoming so politicized, something medical becoming so politicized. And one of the effects of that on the medical profession has just been devastating because when you commit years and years and years of your life to mastering a profession and understanding how to interpret medical data and how to read medical studies and how to process sometimes really esoteric, complex information. And then you have people who consider the equivalent of that to be looking something up online um, from a variety of really dubious and biased sources. And then they tell you they've done their research. You know, this, this devaluation of expertise has been really hard on doctors and experts in the medical field um, because you have people really devaluing your life work (laughs) for political reasons. And it's been, it's been so hard for most doctors to experience that. I think too, it's not only that, it's devaluing it when they don't want to believe it, but then valuing it when they really need it. You know, you hear about people who refuse vaccines, but then they get sick and they realize that they're really in trouble. And the first place they run is to the hospital. So I think at least for me, I get angry on the part of physicians and nurses because I'm like, wait, you didn't believe them a month ago. And now all of a sudden you believe anything they want to put in your body you're not asking questions about it. Yeah, it's very interesting sociologically because it's, it's we have basically this mass delusion. We no longer agree on what constitutes reality anymore. And so I think, you know, we'll, hopefully we'll look back on this period in time and say, you know, damn, that was weird. Um, <laughs> and hopefully we'll come back together as a society and function a little bit better. But right now we can't, we can't agree on what is even real. So it's, it's weird times for sure. But then you look back at something like the 1918 influenza pandemic and we experienced the same thing. You know, communities handled the pandemic extremely differently back then. Some towns did everything possible to try to mitigate the spread of the disease and some didn't at all. And politics was involved then too. And so I think it's part of human nature that this happens. Well, I have to ask, I, I mean, I know you're you're promoting Doctors and Friends. Have you started working on something else? I feel like you just posted something recently on Instagram that you are. Oh, yeah, I did. Um, yes, I'm finally working on my fourth novel again. I kind of put it on the back burner because I was doing the book tour and promoting the new book and it's the holidays. And so now I'm back to working on it and I'm really enjoying just writing again. So can you give us a little tease as to what this new one's going to be about? Well, I think it's going to involve a very devoted marriage between this couple. One of them, of course, is a doctor. And there's this enormous secret that she uncovers about her husband's past. I don't want to say too much right now because yeah. I'll probably change a lot of it. But um, I'd be happy to like, give you an early update once I have the first draft done. <laughs> cool. <laughs> the only thing I have to ask is, is one of the characters, one of the women in the group, in this seven female physicians that have been in the other three books? Um, it's the same fictional universe. And okay. there is the main character is not in the previous books. But she was friends with Georgia, um, okay. who is the protagonist of the second book. And I think she even has a brief mention in Doctors and Friends. Uh, so there may be some overlap in the characters there. Well, for our listeners out there, I highly recommend Doctors and Friends. I have read all of, of Kemri's books, and I think this is your best work so far, and I, and I loved it. So we are going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. So we are back with Kimry Martin and with Carrie. Carrie, we've had a couple snow days here in Louisville. Have you been hunkering down and reading something good? I have been reading uh, some good things, but I'm not ready to talk about them yet because I'm still, I'm only about halfway through with several of them. So, but I do want to mention a book that I read in, I think it was in December. It's called Melville in Love by Michael Sheldon. And this is actually a book that you had picked up somewhere, maybe one of the library book sales, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And um, had you very written all over it. Yes. I know how much you love Moby Dick. I did. I hate, <laughs> yeah. Hated Moby Dick. Uh, read it. <laughs> 
somehow finished it. The funny thing is, I've read several other books about Herman Melville that have made me appreciate Moby Dick a little bit more. And this is one of them. Again, it's called Melville in Love by Michael Sheldon. And it's a biography of Herman Melville. Now, I, you know, other than the fact that he wrote Moby Dick and Bartleby the Scrivener, I didn't know too much about Melville. But he lived in the Berkshires with his wife and his family at the same time that he was also having an affair with a neighbor. And he was having this affair as he was writing Moby Dick. And so that made, you know, the writing of the book a little bit more interesting to me, because if you've read Moby Dick, you know that the crux of the story is about Captain Ahab and his obsession with the white whale. And so that idea of obsession really relates to Melville's romantic affair with this neighbor. Her name was Sarah Morwood and and he was obsessed with her. They were obsessed with each other. And so that made me think a little bit differently about Moby Dick. Sarah Morwood was married and she also had several children, one of whom Michael Sheldon suggests could have been Melville. So they're not sure about that. But she was a woman of literature and letters, and she was very different from Herman Melville's wife, Elizabeth Shaw. Now, he married Elizabeth primarily because her father was a judge and she was wealthy. And Herman Melville was having to take care of his mother and his sisters and really didn't have a whole lot. They were they were fairly poor. So, you know, I think his marriage, they were married for decades. And they sort of tolerated each other and, and not very well. One of the other interesting things about this biography was was about Melville's very weird relationship with Nathaniel Hawthorne, who did not seem to reciprocate the enthusiasm that Melville <laughs> felt. You know, it was very, you know, from reading this, it was very one-sided, you know, that, that Melville was super enthusiastic and, and a little bit obsessed with Hawthorne, and Hawthorne was more kind of like, talk to the hand. So anyway, it it was fascinating. I enjoyed it. And like I said, it's been very weird for me because even though I did not love Moby Dick at all, I have read several really good books that either relate to Melville or relate to his writing of Moby Dick that have given me a, a greater appreciation of that book that I barely got through. So did it talk at all about where his interest in whales such that he wrote this huge tome about it come from? So he had traveled, you know, he had had experience on whaling ships and and on ships traveling throughout the world that, you know, he had actually done that. So that part of it was based on his own experience. But I I think in terms of it, it was circumstances you know he was in love he was obsessed he was constantly thinking about this woman and that obsessive idea he sort of put into his character Ahab who was obsessed about this whale and getting from this whale what he needed to get from it but but yes Melville had experience on the seas Kimory what have you been reading lately Well, I'm the worst at remembering titles. I do keep a running list of some of what I'm reading on my website, kimariemartin.com. There's a whole list with links of the books that I read each month. Although I I keep forgetting to update it. It's so bad. I feel bad that I leave any book off this list. But right now I'm reading one called Until the End of Time from one of my all-time favorite science writers. He's actually a physicist named Brian Green. And it is a beautifully written kind of existential book about what's going to happen in the universe and to humanity and how we got to where we are from a physics standpoint. And I know that sounds boring, but it is really, really beautifully written. And I read a lot of science stuff and I love this guy. Um, And then fiction wise, I had a lot of reading in December and November. My favorite book in that time period was called My Year Abroad by Chang Ray Lee. And it's literary fiction and it's a slow read, but it's this sort of journeyman coming of age story of a young kid who travels with this charismatic figure to Asia. And I loved it. So the book that you mentioned about physics and kind of what's going to happen. Is that really wonky? Because I know I listened to Neil deGrasse Tyson's, it was like, I don't know, astrophysics for average people or something. I can't remember the title of it, but I listened to it on audiobook and I was like, I have no idea what he's talking about. (laughs) I guess I'm like below average, but is the book that you mentioned, does it get in the weeds a lot? Well, it's a mixture of 
comprehensible and not. Okay. <laughs> I like reading about theoretical physics because these guys explain how things work and why they are the way they are in words. I can't understand it in math, which mm -hmm. is why I never was good at physics. But I can read about physics and understand what it means when people do a good job of explaining it. And this guy really does. But if you're not interested in knowing, you know, like why the universe is expanding or, you know, how the Big Bang happened or what string theory is or any of that stuff, then you probably won't like the book. But I kind of like an, having this tiny little glimmer of understanding of the things these people do. I mean, I'm aware this is probably the geekiest thing that anyone has ever said on your show. So <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> hey, I love to geek out, so no no problem. I'm wondering if for me, if it, if it was because I was listening to it, like if I had been reading it. Yes. I think that was for me the disconnect. I, I need to be able to go back and go, okay, what was that again? And, and have right. the book in front of me. I'm a really visual learner when it comes, like I can only learn when I read. I cannot remember a damn thing. If anybody tells me something, <laughs> <laughs> it is gone. Amy. I know you haven't been listening to books about physics or reading books no, about physics. No, <laughs> I absolutely have not. Uh, I, over the holidays, read a book and I was blathering about it to anybody that would listen to me talk about books, but it's called The Mist by Ragnar Jonansson. And it's translated from the Icelandic by Andreas Jager and Victoria Cribb. And I'm not usually a huge mystery thriller reader, but I do have a soft spot for Nordic noir. So when a bookstagrammer I follow on Instagram recommended this novel, it interested me. So it's set from the Christmas holiday of 1986 through March of the following year, and my interest was piqued. If you read this author's bio on Goodreads, it states that at the age of 17, he translated 14 of Agatha Christie's novels into Icelandic. So to me, this guy is really serious about his crime writing. So Janusson has several mystery series that are set in Iceland. The Mist uh, is part of the Hidden Iceland series and features a female detective named Hulda. And I won't even attempt to pronounce Hulda's last name, but it starts with an H and is then followed by about 15 other letters. Uh, <laughs> now, the strange thing is that this is actually third in the series. So I asked the bookstagrammer, and I wish I could remember who it was, uh, but I can't, uh, if it would be a problem to read this one, the third one, first, because I was looking to read a book that was set around the holidays. And her response was actually that it might be better because these books go in reverse time order. So in the third book that I'm going to talk about, Hulda is in her late thirties, but in the first book in the series, she is a detective inspector who's in her sixties. So in this book, Hulda is recovering from a huge personal tragedy, but her supervisor asks her if she's ready to come back to work to take over a case of a suspected double murder in a remote farmhouse over 300 miles outside Reykjavik. It's March, and a married couple is found dead on the property. But from the looks of the house, as she takes notes. It's as if time has stood still from the Christmas holiday. The tree's still up with presents underneath it, and the Christmas dinner is ready to be put in the oven. So these deaths most likely happened right at Christmas, several months before the bodies were, were found. So what we get in this story is a dual narrative between Hulda, the detective, who, with both her tragedy and her personal life and how she's trying to hold herself together in order to do her job, while she's also trying to put the pieces together of this case. And the second point of view is of the now dead wife named Erla and the events that led up to Christmas Day, including the massive blizzard that made going anywhere virtually impossible and the stranger who shows up at their door several days before Christmas. I could have probably read this book in one sitting if my family didn't require things from me. <laughs> there isn't a huge, unbelievable twist in that. And when I say I'm not usually a mystery thriller reader, it's not that I don't enjoy those. I just feel that so many of them recently have like these very strange, totally unbelievable uh, twists in them. But this one was just a great murder mystery that is both creepy, atmospheric, and at times a bit brutal. This is no cozy mystery. It really emphasizes the sinister feeling of that kind of isolation. And not only 
is the farmhouse remote to begin with, but the blizzard adds another layer, plus the almost day-long darkness in Iceland at that time of year is like the proverbial cherry on top. And as I was planning what I was going to say about this book today, it dawned on me that this must be a trope that I'm attracted to because I also loved a book called The Lost Man by Jane Harper, which is somewhat of a similar story, but it's set in Australia and the outback where the heat and the lack of water make isolation on the huge ranches palpable. And so these books are like on opposite weather extremes. So I, I just really appreciate that kind of atmospheric writing. One thing that isn't dark and creepy that I enjoyed about this book is that the author really gives you a feel of what traditions Icelanders have at the holidays, what kind of food they would eat, what traditions the rural Icelanders hold on to. And I've always wanted to visit Iceland, but this increased that desire, although maybe not in winter time. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not in winter. Now, a funny story related to this is that several years ago, we hosted a Norwegian exchange student who came to stay with us right after the holidays. And she told us about a tradition in Norway that she called murder Christmas. She said everyone there reads or watches murder mysteries on Christmas, which at the time I thought was very strange. But then I ended up carrying on that Norwegian tradition (laughs) this year. So I definitely want to read the other two books in this series. He's written quite a few books, so he's uh, one that I intend to read more of. As soon as you started talking about this book, I got on my computer as you were talking and reserved it at the library. But (laughs) I don't know how this guy has any time because there are so few people in the world who can translate works into Icelandic. I mean, think right. about it, you know, there's a billion people that can translate into English. Yeah. Right. Um, but there, there are only like, I want to say three or 400,000 people in the world that speak Icelandic and most of them can't translate other works. So yeah. he must be really busy. <laughs> well, now he has other people translating his works. I mean, he must speak English, I'm guessing, because he translated those Agatha Christie books, but it must be time intensive to try to translate his own books, I'm guessing. So. You know, I think it actually, you're right. I think it's the reverse. It's very hard to translate books written in Icelandic into other languages. Yeah. Yeah. And most, of, most people do speak English, but how many people speak, you know, Icelandic and Turkish or Icelandic and Chinese in various forms or whatever, you know, so it's really hard to get their writing translated into other countries. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, we are going to take another quick break. And when we come back, Kimberly's going to answer her three in the third degree. We're back once again with Kimmery Martin. Your first question, uh, and I always love to ask a question about people's pets. You adopted a pet over COVID. Tell us that story of your of your new dog. Yeah, I assume you saw him on Instagram. Yes, I did. He's adorable. He's my bud, and he's always with me. So he gets he gets into my Instagram sometimes. We got him a year ago around Christmas in 2020 from the shelter and he is the sweetest thing his name is charlie we think he's a little bit lab a little bit beagle maybe a little bit pitbull maybe a little bit great pyrenees he had a i guess a pretty traumatic history before we got him because he had been shot with a bb gun Mm. um we discovered when we had his surgery to get him neutered and I thought that was so terrible and rare that someone would shoot a dog with a BB gun. Yeah, I found out that actually it's not that uncommon for people to shoot their pets with BB guns to train them, apparently because they aren't hurt enough to require surgery, but they're you know hurt enough to be terrified. So needless to say, Charlie is a little bit neurotic <laughs> in some ways. When he first came to us, he was starving and had a terrible pneumonia and this was like this tiny little afraid feeble thing. And then he perked up a lot once we started taking care of him and he attached himself to me. And now I know, I guess it's not that uncommon in shelter animals, but he's like my Velcro dog. He follows me around from room to room. And when I'm not home, he mopes. (laughs) So we're working on that, (laughs) like trying to get him to, to realize that he can be safe with everybody. But he does adore our family and he's really cute. Oh, how old is he again? We think he was about one when we got him. So he's two now. Okay. You'll have to send us a picture of him because we have a new feature on our website 
uh, and on our social media where we call it perky pets because oftentimes, like we have today, we hear the pets in the background. So once we started recording remotely during COVID, we decided sometimes it was just too hard to try to take those noises out of the background. And so we just feature them now. I would love to have a picture of your of Charlie to to feature. That's awesome. Oh, that's perfect. Yes, he does all of my podcasts and TV interviews and Zooms and everything <laughs> with me. So like half the Zooms I'm in, you see this head like poking up under my hand like they do to try to get pets and my hand will fly up, my hand will fly up. And, but I can't really put him out of the room because he gets bummed out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, he's just, he's there. He's like your agent, you know, just making sure that everything's <laughs> going smoothly. So question number two. So you've had two exciting careers as a physician and now as an author. Is there a profession that appeals to you that if you were going to switch careers again, you would want to do? And it doesn't even have to be something that you think you'd be good at, just something that you love to try. Oh, well, I'm glad you included that caveat because uh, there's all kinds of random things I would suck at that I want to do. (laughs) (laughs) Like what? Well, I would like to be an interior designer. I would like to be, more than anything, I would like to be a travel writer. And I would not suck at that. I would be awesome if anyone wants to pay me for that. I've thought about like wanting to be a CIA intelligence analyst Mm -hmm. because that sounds badass and cool and you get to use your brain. And I don't know, it just sounds intriguing. I used to find politics interesting, but now I would rather pluck out my eyeball with a fork (laughs) than go into that. Absolutely. So your last question, you have said that your father was like a real life MacGyver. And so we're wondering, what are some of the best MacGyver memories that you have with your dad? Yeah, he was one of those people who was extremely innovative and mechanically minded. He could figure out anything. He could fix anything. He understood anything except for fashion, um, which he (laughs) most definitely did not understand. But so he made a lot of our stuff. In fact, he built our house with no training in, in architecture or in building, but he figured out how to design and build an energy efficient house and he built it. And then he would come up with all these contraptions. Like we didn't have air conditionings. He had all these ways of keeping the house cool. He would go to old junkyards and get rusted out hulls of cars and trucks from the 1930s and 1940s and rebuild them. But he would rebuild them in bizarre ways. Like for hubcaps, he might use pie tins from Walmart or something, you know, So he was always making machines, but my favorite thing that he built that sometimes I would help him with was furniture. So he would get old car parts or stuff again from a junkyard and turn it into beautiful tables and pieces of furniture that were quirky and weird looking, like kind of Rube Goldberg looking, but actually functioned very well as furniture. Well, I don't know if you remember this. I think I told you in the last time that we chatted, but Carrie and I, our whole book club stayed in your childhood home in Berea, Kentucky, because uh, it's on Airbnb. And so we had a book club retreat there, which is how I actually found out about you and your very first book was because when I was corresponding, I think it was maybe with one of your siblings about renting the house and they were asking what the occasion was. And I said, oh, it's a book club retreat. And they said, oh, our sister is a writer. You have to read her book. Uh, but anyway, no way. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I, did, I did not remember this. Well, That's Carrie, hilarious. So Carrie and I have <laughs> stayed in that home and it was the coolest house yeah. I mean, it's quirky. Uh, It's it's quirky, quirky, but it's cool. Yeah. It totally was cool. It had all like these rope ladders and these like loft beds. And it was, it was an awesome house uh, to stay in for that. So I I can totally see that. Yeah, it's the first house he ever built. And he went on to be a builder and designer of energy efficient houses, um, which was not a huge thing in the 1970s. But so that was his first effort. And it does have a lot of, a lot of weird, quirky things to it, but it was such a wonderful place to grow up. Yeah. Well, and you even worked something uh, MacGyverish your dad had done into your book. Oh, yeah, that's right. Doctors and Friends has a scene in the beginning that actually took place in real life at my wedding. Um, so if you read the first chapter, there's this scene where Kira Marchand, the protagonist, is at a big party and she fixes something for the hostess. So that happened to real in real life to me at my wedding with my dad. Yeah, that was super <laughs> cool. Well, Kimberly, thanks again so much for joining us and talking to us about your new book. It has been a real pleasure to, to speak with you again. You too. Thank you so much. I hope to see you again in real life for the next one. 
You can find Kimmery Martin at her website, kimmerymartin.com, and on Instagram at kimmerymartin. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Do you have a favorite book you'd like to share with us or feedback of what types of guests you'd like to hear from? If so, send us a message through our website. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.